much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwoods and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifle and sex knife and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry, or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. Hello there, everybody. I'm Dave Yost, and welcome to OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. So unfortunately, uh, between my personal schedule and the schedule of uh, my my guests, uh, it's become a bit tricky lately, uh, which is what accounts for the, the delays in uh, episodes coming out that we've been experiencing. Uh, but I'm going to do my best to keep things uh, on a regular schedule. Uh, I know my personal schedule has uh, calmed down quite a bit now, uh, and I should be able to push things out on our regular two-week basis. Uh, you may have noticed that I, I still haven't posted part two of our series on, on economic growth. Uh, it's just a really busy time of year for Joseph, so uh, it's been tough to find time to record, but uh, once it slows down for him, uh, I know he wants to come back and do it, so that will be forthcoming. In the meantime, I want to provide you guys with regular content. So I thought I'd respond to a listener request from Jackie Kay uh, that covers a topic that I've actually personally written about in the past. Uh, today, I'm going to walk you all through the economics of excise taxes. Now, to set the stage for you, the reason this came up is because over the, the past you know, months and, and really the past year, uh, there's been a heated debate around Chicago about a tax that was imposed back in August of uh, 2016 on sugary beverages. Now, a lot of you are intimately familiar with this, as a significant amount of my listenership is from the Chicagoland area. But for those that aren't, I'll, I'll go through the details of, of the tax and its implementation. I do want to point out that True to the podcast, I'm, I'm not really going to delve too deeply into the politics surrounding the sugar tax. Rather, I want to look at the underlying economics at play. It, it should come as no surprise to regular listeners that the conclusion drawn at the end of this episode is 
spoilers, it depends on what you want to do and why you want to do it. Uh, that being the answer to, well, every question in economics. Okay, so let's start with a bit of background. First, what exactly is this term excise tax that I'm using? Well, an excise tax is a tax levied on the purchase of a specific good. Uh, such tax is typically imposed in an attempt to reduce demand for the product, or at least that's what it's supposed to do. Uh, we'll get into the conflicting incentive structure of an excise tax a bit later. The idea behind it is that if you make the specific good more expensive by adding the cost of the tax, you will reduce consumers' willingness to pay for it and thus reduce overall demand. Now, this all works out perfectly when you look at the microeconomic theory behind it. I hate doing it, but I am now going to attempt to describe a graph. Uh, a graph being an inherently visual representation of information on an entirely audio medium. Please bear with me. So, if you picture a standard supply and demand graph with supply running on an upward diagonal and demand running on a downward diagonal, the point on the graph where the two lines intersect will then give you the price of the item that the graph is representing. An important side note here, uh, one of my, my favorite quotes from a professor uh, back when I was in school was that in economics, anytime two lines intersect, it means something significant. I always like that. Uh, good rule of thumb and, and very true. Anyway, when an excise tax is imposed on this graph, the supply line is going to, the, the whole supply line is going to shift upwards. It's not going to change angle, but it, the whole line just shifts up so that it pushes the intersection point to the level of the new higher price. What this does is it shifts that intersection point along the demand curve uh, to a point of lower demand. I'll post an image of this on the Facebook page, but the increase in price from the excise tax will reduce demand, in theory. Now, don't take my inclusion of the words in theory to be dismissive of microeconomic theory. The, the theory is important. We're going to get to where the theory breaks down upon application, but that doesn't invalidate the theory. When looking at complex issues, the theory gives us a starting point to build from. Theory has the virtue of being clear, but the vice of being simple. On the graph I've just described, there are really only three factors being considered in a vacuum. You know, supply, demand, and price. In the real world, there are a lot of other factors that are going to affect results here. We know that, in theory, an excise tax should reduce demand. So then if it fails to do so, it's likely not because the theory is wrong, but because there are what we call in economics, exogenous variables, or variables outside the main equation that are affecting the outcome. A quick terminology aside here, I'm sure you've heard me and, and guests uh, use the term exogenous and endogenous before. If you're having trouble with them, I've always remembered the difference by the fact that endogenous sounds like indigenous, uh, as in the indigenous peoples of Australia, 
which ties to the meaning of originating from within, while exogenous is, well, the opposite, coming from without. So, in a vacuum, excise taxes will curb demand for a product. And that's our show. See you next time on OK, let me... Wait, what? It is. I see. Okay, well, apparently, like most things in economics, it's much more complicated than that. So I guess we'll keep going. Now, as I'd mentioned before, I have studied excise taxes for research papers. Now, the, the, the one paper I wrote was focused on tobacco taxes, but the inherent complications when it comes to sugar tax are, are almost exactly the same. The key issue that you have to examine in excise taxes comes down to conflicting incentives. Regular listeners to the show will note that it only took me uh, 7 minutes 16 seconds uh, to uh, reference the word incentives, because, of course, you really can't talk about economics without talking about incentive. Uh, when dealing with an excise tax, you typically have three groups at play. You have the producers of the product in question, whether it's cigarettes, alcohol, sugar, uh, who of course oppose any tax because they don't want to experience the drop in demand caused by an increase in price. Uh, you then have those opposed to the product, which are usually blobbing groups who want the tax imposed so as to reduce demand for the product. And then you have the government. And, and this can be any level, federal, state, municipal, wherever an excise tax is being considered. Now, the government body that is considering imposing an excise tax is where the incentive structure gets tricky. Because while the government representatives, and, and again, I'm, I'm referring to them vaguely only because these principles hold true at any level of government, so... It's not just at a state or at the federal or, or you know, municipal level. Uh, so, yeah, throughout the episode, uh, I'll tend to root. I, I hate to do it because it makes it sound like uh, almost like I'm referring to the government as conspiratorial. But eh, I'm just trying to be appropriately broad here. So. While the government may be aligned, members of the government may be aligned with the producers or the opponents' ideologies of a given product, they also have a second motivation at play concerning revenue. Because when an excise tax is imposed by a government, the proceeds of that tax go to the government entity that imposed it. As a result, they get additional money to spend in their budget. So an excise tax seems great if you're a government representative, except if the excise tax is effective, then demand will go down and you will collect less money from the tax. What this creates is an incentive within, the, within government bodies to impose an excise tax, but not so high of one that it will have a genuine impact on consumption. Because once you establish this new revenue stream, you want to keep the money from it flowing in. Now, I'm not casting judgment on governments for doing this. It, it may seem like a shallow and greedy maneuver, 
But keep in mind, in many cases, the, the revenues from excise taxes are used for a lot of beneficial purposes, and, and, and we'll get to that a bit later. But whether it's benevolent or not, it's important to note that the, con the conflicting incentive exists because it leads directly to the problems of implementation. The main thing that an excise tax is working against when it's imposed is what is called elasticity of demand and the effectiveness. And, and again, for, for our purposes, when I talk about effectiveness, I'm referring to an excise tax's ability to reduce demand for a product. Uh, so the, the effectiveness of such a tax depends entirely on how elastic consumer demand for the product is. Now, for those of you not familiar, Elasticity is basically your willingness to buy a product as the price changes. So if the price starts going up on your favorite guilty pleasure, whether it's chocolate or cigarettes or, or the films of Ryan Reynolds, delightful. Anyway, whatever it is for you, you may be willing to absorb that increased cost because it's something that you like. But eventually, as we keep increasing the price, you are going to, going to hit a breaking point at which the cost of your guilty pleasure is now too high for you to justify, and you will stop buying it. Uh, as far as you're willing to stretch on that price is your elasticity of demand. Now, there are some products that are considered inelastic. Uh, one of the best examples of this is gasoline, because so many people rely on their cars as their method of getting to work. Fuel for those cars is an absolute necessity for making money. As such, if the price of gasoline increases, people will continue to pay because the alternative for many is to no longer be able to go to work and thus to have no income. This, of course, changes when you're looking at dense urban areas because there are many practical alternatives to driving. Here in Chicago, gas is likely more elastic for most people because of the prevalence of trains and buses and other alternatives. But depending on where you live and where your job is, gas may be an entirely inelastic product for you. Of course, there is an excise tax on gasoline here in the U.S. And, and when you're looking at excise taxes on inelastic products, you can generally count on the notion that these were established mainly as a revenue stream for the government rather than an attempt at curbing demand. Of course, before we get too cynical, remember that often the revenue generated from an excise tax is earmarked by the government to go towards countering the negative externalities of that product. So the gas tax may not curb demand for driving significantly, but the revenue from it can go towards programs to reduce air pollution. Another problem that comes up when considering excise taxes is in gauging just how effective they really are. Going back to the conflicting incentives at play, if the government's sole motivation was to eliminate tobacco use, then they would want to impose a tax so high on cigarettes that it takes the price of the product past the breaking point for everyone. So, in an extreme example, let's say they had a $1 million per pack tax to cigarettes. At this point, almost no one could afford to buy cigarettes, and tobacco usage drops to practically zero. Mission accomplished. Except they don't do that. 
for a number of reasons. Not only would such a tax never see any realized revenue, because it would eliminate purchases on the product tax, but also it would put a major industry, the tobacco industry, out of business, eliminating the jobs, and, and if we want to be a little cynical, campaign donations from the tobacco lobby. So they impose excise taxes on tobacco in, in amounts of, of $1 or $2 per pack, enough to increase the price so that people who have a highly elastic demand for tobacco will quit, and those who demand, whose demand is inelastic will not, and they will pay the tax. Advocates for such taxes will point to declining demand as a mark of the tax's success, but it gets a little murky when you peel back the layers of, of exogenous variables. For tobacco specifically, anti-smoking groups will point to declining demand as proof of how effective excise taxes on tobacco are. But they tend to look at decline in demand over the past 75 years. The, the, the problem with that is if you're comparing demand today versus demand in 1950, some major events have happened between then and now that have impacted our demand for cigarettes. Mainly, in 1964, when tobacco companies were forced to admit the adverse health effects of their product and stop using doctors as their spokesmen. Uh, over the course of the latter half of the 20th century, public consensus on the health impact of smoking has shifted significantly. And it can be argued that this shift in thinking has been responsible for more people quitting or not starting smoking at all than any amount of excise taxes. It's the same with fuel tax. Demand has gone down, but fuel efficiency has gone up. So you have to ask yourself, did the excise tax cause people to stop driving? Or have innovations in automotive technology allowed us to drive just as much, but using less fuel? Of course, you go one level deeper in the Oracle from the Matrix kind of way, you have to ask whether or not the excise tax on fuel directly caused car companies to develop more fuel-efficient cars. The point being that these exogenous factors have an impact that is possibly independent of any effect that the excise tax may have had, making it hard to determine just how effective the tax alone really is. You also have the complication of substitution. Uh, when an excise tax is imposed on a, a specific product, people for whom that product has a high elasticity may stop using it, or they may substitute away. In the case of sugar taxes, when they're imposed on, on just pop, and, and yes, it's, not, it's, it's pop, not soda, not cola, not soda pop, the correct word is pop. Anyway. When they're imposed on, on just pop, people may quit drinking the taxed product, but they may just substitute to, to diet pop or fruit juice, uh, which is also high in sugar. With this kind of substitution, you're not realizing the desired health benefit of people consuming less sugar. You're just shifting the source of where they're getting their sugar. 
wealth and inflation are, of course, going to be factors in the effectiveness of an excise tax over time. Uh, if an excise tax is imposed and, and left constant, uh, but medium income increases over time, then, then people will start using the tax product, product again as their breaking point in real dollars shifts with increased income. And, and inflation can have different effects depending on how the excise tax is imposed. If it's imposed in a dollar amount, then as the dollar loses value, the impacts, impact of the tax will decrease. If it's imposed as a percentage of the price of the product, then as inflation drives prices up, the tax will have an increased impact without the government having to increase the tax. All of this is to say that there are a lot of exogenous variables that can impact how effective an excise tax will be on curbing demand for a given product, and they need to be taken into consideration before trumpeting the success of such a tax. Of course, to me, the most significant factor is one that rarely gets talked about from, from any side of this issue, and that is geography. Now, Depending on what level of government imposes an excise tax, the effect that geography plays can vary. But in the case of the Cook County sugar tax, it's a huge factor affecting outcomes. When a municipality imposes an excise tax, they will typically see a substantial drop in sales from the product taxed and declare victory. However, what we also tend to see is a spike in sales of the same product in neighboring municipalities, or uh, what are sometimes referred to as collar areas. I'll give you all three guesses as to what accounts for that. The problem with highly localized excise taxes is that when residents of the municipality have the ability to engage in cross-border shopping, some of them will. What this means is that uh, product is, is taxed in one county and not in the neighboring counties, some residents, especially those living near the border, will simply travel to the other county where there is no excise tax, or at least a lower one, and make their purchases there, thus failing to curb behavior and depriving the municipality of tax revenue. The worst of both worlds. I think that the hard truth that, that lawmakers need to confront when considering excise taxes is that if people can avoid paying a tax, they will. Now, if your goal as a lawmaker is purely to curb the use of certain products, you may be able to declare some small victory for those people who elect not to engage in cross-border shopping and either reduce their consumption or quit using the product altogether. But if you're looking at an excise tax as an opportunity to increase revenue, you will be sorely disappointed. Unfortunately, added tax revenue is almost universally one of the major selling points of instituting such taxes. Those in favor of the tax will, will produce uh, tax revenue projections that will make other lawmakers see dollar signs. And, and again, Let's give them the benefit of the doubt here. The temptation to institute excise taxes as a way to increase revenue isn't necessarily born from greed. More tax revenue means more money for schools, road construction, any number of pet projects that we as people like, want, and appreciate. 
So when a proposal comes along that offers to pad the general fund, what lawmaker wouldn't jump at that chance? The problem, of course, is that the revenue projections are based on current consumption of the product without factoring in reductions in consumption of that product. So they were almost always far higher than realized. Such projections always need to be taken skeptically, especially when the proponents of which are promising to reduce consumption and increase revenue at the same time. These two ideas are mutually exclusive. Yes, you will get more revenue than you had been getting without the tax. But you can't base your assumption on the rate of consumption without the tax. As I stated at the beginning of the episode, the excise tax will have an effect. Consumption, at least within your municipality, will drop. We've seen this play out practically with with highly localized excise taxes in the past. Philadelphia instituted a sugar tax in 2016. This passed partially based on a projection of an additional $46.2 million over the first six months of the tax. In reality, only $39.5 million was collected from the sugar tax over that same period, difference of $6.7 million. The city of Chicago has experienced the same phenomenon with tobacco taxes. In 2013, Chicago doubled its excise tax on tobacco products with the expectation that the increase would net the city an additional $930 million in revenue. When the numbers were finally in, the actual taxes collected fell short of that projection by $123 million. Granted, $807 million is still a good amount of money, but if you're instituting the tax with spending already earmarked or to cover budget shortfalls, the added revenue will never be as high as projected, and that can create problems. Now, Before you start to think this is an entirely one-sided issue and not the complex economic problem that I promised at the introduction of the topic, we should also consider the positive externalities of reducing consumption of certain products. For the true believers of sugar taxes, the, the goal is not one of revenue, but of course to get people to consume less sugar, thus reducing obesity and all of the ill health effects related to it. Now, if that goal were to be achieved through imposing an excise tax, the tax revenue would go down, but so would overall health care costs. I mean, just to give you a a sense of the the scope that we're talking when we're talking about health care costs, in 2009, medical costs related to obesity were estimated at $147 billion a year. A state or municipality that imposes a successful sugar tax may not realize the addi- as, as much additional revenue as they thought from it, but they may experience significant cost savings on other fronts that may more than make up for the shortfall in taxes collected. Of course, I keep emphasizing the word may there because Estimating healthcare cost savings based on people being healthier is, is incredibly complex and, and difficult to do with precision. 
still, the principle of potential positive externality applies and, and should also be considered when looking at the net effect of an excise tax. Now, to the specific tax that has inspired this episode, the, the Cook County Sugar Tax. For those listeners out there who are, are outside of the state of Illinois, and, and especially for those uh, outside the U.S., uh, Cook County is a municipality in Illinois that includes the city of Chicago as well as most of the surrounding suburbs, covering about 5.2 million people. On November 10, 2016, uh, the Cook County Board of Commissioners enacted a one-cent-per-ounce sugar tax. The vote was close, uh, requiring a tiebreaker from Board President Tony Preckwinkle, and the campaign to eliminate the tax started almost immediately. Uh, The tax itself went into effect on the 2nd of August 2017, uh, after some legal wrangling between the Cook County Board and representatives of the Illinois Retailer Merchants Association. As any of our listeners who live in Cook County are acutely aware of, the advertising campaign against this tax has been ubiquitous ever since. Recently, uh, a new vote has eliminated the tax, and Cook County residents will no longer be subject to it as of December 1st. Now, the Cook County tax had several things, uh, aside from the sugary beverage lobby, working against it. One, it was blatantly sold as a means of covering a $200 million budget shortfall in Cook County. The tax was imposed as a means of making up that gap without having to impose budget cuts. As we've discussed, projected revenues will nearly always overestimate reality, which gave those opposed to the tax all the ammunition that they needed to attack it. Because, as expected, the realized tax revenues were significantly less than projected, and opponents were able to paint the tax as the Cook County Board trying to charge people more money for basic items rather than tighten the belt of an over-bloated county government. Uh, The dynamic wasn't helped at all by a somewhat tone-deaf message from those who supported the tax. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, famous for enacting laws as the the mayor of New York City, limiting the quantity of sugary beverages that could be sold in the city, expressed his support and his conviction that the tax would reduce consumption. Advocates for the tax pushed this message, pointing out drops in sales as a sign of victory. However, Uh, Rob Carr, the president of the Illinois Retailer Merchants Association, aptly pointed out that based on retailer reports they were seeing, uh, quote, uh, lost sales between mid 40 percent near the border and teens near the city center. Uh, Likewise, there are significant increases in sales in collar counties that are very close to matching, uh, unquote. When what, what Cars indicate, uh, indicates there is that the true decreases in consumption were likely taking place in the center of Cook County, where it, it doesn't make fiscal or practical sense to cross-border shop. But 
along the border, the statistics were fairly clear that consumers weren't giving up sugary beverages, but simply taking their business into surrounding counties. This, of course, leads to another possible negative externality of the excise tax, and and that's one of uh, unintended losses in revenue. Now, when you tax things like alcohol or tobacco, uh, you, you don't have to worry as much uh, as these products are typically purchased by consumers independently uh, of any other product. Um, however, when you're talking about something that, for better or worse, is considered by many consumers to be a staple of their grocery shopping, such as sugary beverages, you risk them engaging in cross-border shopping, not just for sugary beverages, but for all of their groceries. After all, if you've decided to go, gro- to, go to a grocery store outside of Cook County to buy pop, while you're there, why not simply do all your grocery shopping? Uh, the problem this creates is that not only does Cook County not curb your consumption of pop, nor does it collect the taxes from your consumption of pop, but it also loses out on the taxes it would have collected from all of your other grocery purchases. Given the short amount of time that the Cook County sugar tax is in effect, it's hard to tell whether and, and to what degree negative externalities like this may have had an effect, but the concepts highlighted here should certainly be under consideration when any government looks at, at, at a, a localized excise tax. Likewise, the tax wasn't in effect long enough to gather data on any positive externalities, like improved health and reduced health care costs, so it becomes difficult to pinpoint the overall costs and benefits of this specific tax. A few points of note, though. Uh, Chicago is far from alone in its attempts to impose a sugar tax. Uh, Such taxes have been imposed to varying success in Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, uh, San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley, California, Albany, New York, and Boulder, Colorado, uh, as well as there are national sugar taxes in uh, the UK, South Africa, Norway, Mexico, Ireland, Hungary, France, and, and actually Denmark has uh, had had a soft drink tax in place since the 1930s, uh, but uh, repealed it uh, recently in 2013 uh, due to, no surprise, uh, the fact that Danish consumers uh, were simply making their soft drink purchases in other countries like Sweden and Germany. Uh, also, the pushback received uh, by retailers and, and product lobbies cannot be underestimated. Uh, again, for those of us who, who live in Cook County, we, we saw this in, in grand display. But obviously, the makers of any product want, want to keep the price as low as possible while still maintaining their desired profit margin. And they certainly don't want to see any kind of decrease in consumption. Uh So you're going to get pushback. Uh, The American Beverage Association spent $391,000 on lobbying in 2003. In 2010, it was $8.67 million. 
uh, advertising against sugar taxes has also sprung up from a group called uh, Americans Against Food Taxes, which it will come as no surprise is not so much financed by Americans, you know, uh, you know, regular walking around people, but gets most of its its financing from Welch's. PepsiCo, uh, the Corn Refiners Association, the McDonald's Corporation, and Burger King Holdings Incorporated. So it, it would seem like the consensus uh, of this episode here is that, that excise taxes are largely ineffective, but that, that that isn't necessarily true. The criticisms of excise taxes that I pointed out here aren't meant to attack the idea of an excise tax, but rather fill out the concept in it in, in all its complicated glory. Uh, personally, I wouldn't dissuade lawmakers from ever imposing excise taxes, but but rather want them to fully realize the second and third order effects of such a tax before they vote for it. Again, the the microeconomic theory holds. An excise tax will reduce consumption, and depending on the elasticity of demand, it can bring in additional revenue. But that all has to be taken into consideration along with the externalities, both positive and negative, that will inevitably come into play. For those advocating for such taxes, purely in an effort to reduce consumption, you may want to look at pushing for them in, in larger areas, not, not in, in localized municipalities. You, you may want to look at statewide or nationwide uh, in order uh, for them to have the desired effect. Uh, a national excise tax on sugar in the U.S. will have a much more significant impact on consumption than one that's localized uh, to the point where cross-border shopping becomes a real option for those affected. Uh, So, as promised, the the answer to whether or not excise taxes are effective is it depends. (laughs) It depends on what your goal is and, 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 and what you want to see come about as a result of it. If you're looking to reduce demand, it it depends on how wide an area the tax covers, as well as how much the tax is. If you're looking to create additional tax revenue, it depends on elasticity of demand and uh, how much the tax is. If you're looking to do both, well, good luck with that. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening again. If you all will indulge me going forward, I, I may be doing uh, more shows like this, depending on, on how rapidly I, I can lock down guests. Uh, as always, I'd like to encourage you to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Uh, those ratings help to bump us up in the listings and make it more likely that new listeners will come across the podcast. Additionally, one of the best ways to support us here is to tell a friend about the show. Uh, Also, feel free to join the OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong group on Facebook for updates and a chance to discuss this and other episodes, as well as recommend topics for future episodes. I I truly am happy to delve into anything you might be curious about related to economics. Uh, By the way, to our international listeners, I'd also like to give a special shout out to those of you from the U.K., 
who uh, internationally have the second most listens to the show, uh, to which I give you my most sincerely British harumph, uh, and uh, to the people of Denmark, uh, who have been steadily climbing the listings as the country with the third most listens to the podcast, uh, to all of you, I say Takskal Duha, and immediately apologize for my mispronunciation. Uh, and with that, uh, thanks for listening. Again, I'm uh, going to do my, my level best to keep us on a uh, regular schedule going forward. And uh, yeah, given my schedule, that is uh, much more like a much more achievable goal these days. Uh, and with that, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.